You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. But tonight, to get back, to get on to what we're actually doing this evening, we are continuing through our series, if you're new, we're continuing this series that we've called Bible Stories, subtitled Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're looking at famous Old Testament stories and seeing how they all foreshadow Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself says in the Gospels that all scripture points to him. Um, The New Testament and other books like Hebrews and Colossians say that everything in the Old Testament was just a type and shadow of the one who was to come, who is Jesus. So what we're doing is we're just looking at that, um, or we're taking that as true, and now we're going back at the Old Testament and saying, okay, so where is Jesus in all these stories, right? So that's the big thread that we're trying to run through the Old Testament. Um, Now, in the Old Testament, few people are more important than Abraham, Very few people are more important than Abraham. He is the OG, if you will, or the OJ, if you get what I'm saying. The original Jew, Genesis 17, he circumcised himself, come on. Like, by the way, kudos to that guy, he's tough. Um, I heard the stand-up comedian talking about, like, God tells him, like, hey, like, you're going to have to, like, circumcise yourself and all of your male children. And Abraham was probably like, Lord, are you sure we can't just do, like, some kind of secret handshake so that, like, people know I'm your people? Um, (laughs) I thought that was funny, whatever. That's, that's going to be on the podcast now. Um, that was actually in my notes to make that joke. I thought that was so funny. Um, yeah, I'm a loser. All right, so a- Abraham is like the, the, he's the father of the nation of Israel. He's the father of the Hebrew nation, uh, forefather of Jesus, a patriarch of the faith, right? So he is our spiritual father because he was justified by faith. Um, He's mentioned in both the Old and New Testaments as a shining example of what it means to have true faith in God. Um, But as we're going to see this evening, in order to become that exemplary model of faith and a living testimony of faithfulness, Abraham had to undergo many trials. Abraham had to suffer. But in the end uh, of this story in particular, we're going to see Abraham continually trust in his God. Because he knows his God will be faithful to him. So we're going to see that his life actually measured up to the faith that he professed to have. Um, so tonight, we're going to be looking at, arguably, the most famous story in the Old Testament. Right? We're looking at the story of Abraham and Isaac. Now, most of us have heard this story. Um, where God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And at the last minute, the angel of the Lord, right, as like Abraham's hand is stretched out with a knife to slaughter his own son, that the angel says, wait, stop. Right? So most of us are familiar, at least on a surface level, with this story. Um, and as we consider this story, though, I want us to look at it with kind of maybe some, some new lenses, or maybe we're just like under a microscope, I guess, see some stuff that maybe we've never considered before. Um, but what I want us to consider uh, is Abraham's faithfulness to God in the midst of intense suffering, in the midst of confusion. And I want us to put ourselves in Abraham's shoes as we're reading this text and consider how he felt and then what he did. And, 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 and please don't harden your hearts to this text. My prayer is that we wouldn't assume that we totally get this text, but that we would instead let this example of Abraham teach us about godly suffering. And godly perseverance in the midst of a trial. Um, and I know, and again, I'm, I know this has turned into a cliche sometimes because I say this a good bit whenever I preach on suffering. I know people here are hurting. I talk with you guys. 
right? I, I pray with you, and in my personal time, I, I promise you, I pray for you. So what I've been praying this whole week is that this message would challenge you and encourage you to continually to faithfully pursue God through the pain of whatever it is you're enduring right now. All right, before we can get into the text, by the way, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22. If you're a Bible flipper, feel free to use the blue Bibles in the backs of those pews. Uh, that's a gift to you if you want. Actually, I, I misspoke. We don't use the exact same translation of those blue Bibles. But if you're new, take one of those home with you. Um, and if there's not one in the pew in front of you, let me know and I'll get you a Bible before you go home. Uh, but before we get into Genesis 22, we've got to do a little bit of background so we know exactly what's going on so we can get some kind of context for what we're getting dropped into. Um, to start, we need to look back to Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15, where we talked about a couple weeks ago that God made some promises to a, a pagan guy named Abram, who later gets named Abraham, All right, that God promised him descendants, right? Like descendants as numerous as the, as the dust on the earth, as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? So a great nation is going to come from Abraham. He promised him a land, right? The land of Canaan, this promised land. And then he promised the Messiah, right? The one that God promised originally in Genesis chapter 3 to Eve, that there would be a serpent crusher, which is the coolest nickname of Jesus I've ever heard, right? That like, like this one who's going to come from Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent's going to bruise his heel, right? That this guy, the guy who's going to crush Satan's head, is going to come through Abraham's line, right? And that's, that's probably the biggest, uh, I would argue, it's the biggest promise that he's made to Abraham. So some time goes by after God makes these promises, and still Abraham has no descendants, right? So we get to chapter 16 in Genesis, and we see uh, Sarah, oddly enough, Abraham's wife, has this bright idea, right? Abraham, I've not conceived a child yet. I'm barren. Um, how about you go and sleep with our slave girl, Hagar, and have a kid through her, so at least you have an heir now. I don't know any women. My wife would shoot me if I even proposed an idea like that. Good Lord. Um, anyway, so that's Sarah's idea. It's sinful, obviously, right? She's saying go sleep with someone that you're not married to and do this. Um, horrible idea, but Abraham does it, and he has a son named Ishmael, right? Uh, and then finally, some years go by again. 25 years after God gave Abraham the original promise in Genesis chapter 12, so he's waited a long time. To have a descendant. God finally gives Abraham a son through Sarah like he had promised to. Right? So Sarah's 90 years old at this point. Abraham is 100. And Sarah has a kid at 90 years old. God finally does it. Genesis chapter 21. Isaac is born. And God tells him, and I believe it's Genesis 21, 12, that Isaac is going to be the heir. Right? Now I want, I want us to kind of focus on that and, and really get that ground into your head for what we're getting ready to read in Genesis 22. God tells Abraham... Isaac is the one that your descendants are going to be named through. The Messiah is going to come through Isaac. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Right? And then later on in that chapter, we see Abraham sends away Hagar and Ishmael, that slave woman that he uh, had Ishmael with, because God tells him that it's okay. He says, go ahead, Sarah doesn't want her around anymore. Um, send them away. I'll take care of them. And God does. And now Abraham has only Isaac. Keep that in mind. He sent his other son away. He only has one son. The promise, aside from God, really rests on Isaac now. He's the son of the promise. He is the heir of Abraham's line. God says Isaac is the descendant that the Messiah comes through. So everything is riding on Isaac growing up and having children and continuing this line so that we can finally get to Christ someday. 
So whenever we finally come to our text in chapter 22, Isaac is probably 15 to 30 years old, right? Some scholars say he's even up to 37 years old, right? So keep that in mind, too, because that's going to make this interesting whenever we get to verse 9 here. So Isaac is probably, I'm going to say 15 for the rest of the service. I'm just going to try to guess low, right? Between 15 and 37, uh, some scholars think uh, around then, we're not quite sure. But the reason why I wanted to, to let you know about how old we think he was is he's not a child, right? Anyone else grow up thinking that, like, Isaac was, like, seven years old, right? Which is, like put like a really weird spin on this um, and kind of made Isaac seem helpless. But we're going to see that that's not really the case here, which is awesome. Um, so now that we've talked about all that, let's consider all this together. I'm glad you guys have been following with me. Abraham has been taking it easy for about 15 to 30 years, right? Everything's going well for him. God has given Abraham a son. God has given him a land to dwell in. God has been good to him. Things are going very well for Abraham, right? He's on like a mountain, if you'll let me get away with that cliche. He's on a mountain, right? I can imagine Abraham thinking to himself, you know, God is good, my family is good, life is good. And then this happens, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Let's just pause there for a second because I know what we do whenever we read this because I did it for like the first three days that I was studying this passage. Put yourself in this story for a minute. You're Abraham right now. Don't just glaze over this. Don't read this. Try not to read this story knowing the outcome. Because right, most of us know Isaac is going to live. But let's insert ourselves into this and see this, how Abra- see this how Abraham saw it. Everything seems to be going really well for Abraham. God hasn't spoken to Abraham in years. At least like the Bible is absent of any mention of God talking to him. Again, 15 to 30 years, God has been silent to Abraham. And then this happens. God asked Abraham to do the unthinkable. Right? So let's not, use, let's not sanitize what God has asked Abraham to do. He says, Abraham, kill your son. Your only son, whom you love. You have no other descendants. Just this one that you waited 25 years for. I want you to kill him with a knife and disembowel him and then burn his body on an altar until there is only bone and ashes left. This isn't really a story. That, like, it's, this isn't like a squeaky clean kids story that we like to tell people in Sunday school. Let's, let's really put ourselves into this. God is asking Abraham to do something unthinkable. Put yourself in his shoes. And and here's something else. We know that this is a test from God, right? Verse 1, God wanted to test Abraham, so he goes to him and says this. We know how this story ends, but Abraham does not. So here's like kind of a big theme we're going to run through the rest of this. Consider Abraham's suffering when he hears this. I can imagine he just goes to shambles immediately and starts crying. Imagine his suffering in this. God has just placed a ridiculous amount of suffering on Abraham, and he doesn't tell him why. He just puts it on him. He says, do this. He does not explain to him why. He does not tell him, I'm testing you. He does not say that I'm going to increase your faith through this Abraham. He's saying, no, just go kill your son. Sacrifice him to me. And a side note, God is not violating his moral law here. 
we know the end of the story. We know that God never actually intends Abraham to kill Isaac. This is just a test. So if you're like me and you were wondering, you know, is, is God violating his own commands here? No, because he never actually intended Abraham to go through with it. But this is Abraham's only son, the son through whom God will give Abraham descendants. And now God says, give him back. Return him to me. And Abraham loves Isaac. I, I, really, I, really, I don't know how to stress this stuff enough to you to like get you to see this from Abraham's perspective. Because like, I don't have children. I know a lot of us don't here. But let's think about this. Your only son whom you love. Abraham is a good dad. He doesn't want to do this. He, never would, he wouldn't want his son to get sick, let alone be the one who has to murder him. And yet this is what he's been asked to do. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, And took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So he rises early in the morning. Probably no sleep. This is probably a long, dark night of prayer where Abraham is asking God for strength and grace to be faithful. Because he really doesn't want to do this. But nevertheless, Abraham rose early in the morning. Abraham gets up and immediately begins to obey his God in just raw faith. Though it hurts, though he doesn't understand, he obeys. Verse 4. On the third day, this is a three-day trip. Just think about that for a second. Three days. He's traveling with his son. Knowing what he has to do. Three days. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Notice what Abraham says to the young men. I and the boy will come again to you. Right? Abraham doesn't know how, but Abraham fully believes that Isaac must live. God has promised that the descendants come through Isaac. Isaac doesn't have any children at this point. He doesn't know how, but he's saying, I know that Isaac will live through this. I know God is going to be faithful to his promise to me in this. He's not saying that Isaac won't die, but Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 through 19 tells us that Abraham believed that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. So Abraham's saying, I don't know how God's going to do this, but he is going to live By the end of the day, we are both coming back here because Isaac has to live because God promised me and I trust that he's going to be faithful. I think that's really the only way that Abraham can go through this test is by faith that God is going to be faithful to him. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Whenever Abraham says God will provide, he does not know that there is going to be a ram there. I don't don't believe he knew that. The text tells us nothing that would make us think that he knows Isaac is going to like, be spared completely. But whenever he says, I, th- I think whenever he's saying God will provide, um, and this is, one of the hardest, this is one of the hardest verses for me, so I'm just going to give you just my dumb redneck like trying to understand this. I think what he's saying is God is going to handle this somehow in his own way as he sees fit. He's going to provide a way for him to remain faithful to me, but nevertheless, he is going to provide, even though I don't know how, God is going to handle this problem. 
verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And so we, we talk a lot about Abraham being the, the man of faith that he was, and he really was. But I want you to consider the faith of Isaac here, just for a second, because we're going to come back to this at the end. There is no mention of a struggle or a fight here, is there? It says he's bound him and put him on the altar. Right? And there's not even an argument mentioned here. Isaac only speaks, I think, I think this is the only time Isaac spoke in the Bible, is in verses 6 to 8 where he says, Hey, Father, where's the lamb? Right? So there's not an argument. There's no fight. Isaac doesn't try to run. I want you to consider this. Isaac is 15. Abraham is 115. Like, I'm not the smartest man in the world, but if a 15-year-old can outrun a 115-year-old, like most of the time, like I couldn't, but most 15-year-olds could. Right? He could have ran, and he didn't. He could, have, he could have beat his dad up, but he didn't. He allows himself to be bound and put on this altar. So I imagine that there is a conversation that takes place between Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham had to look at his son and say, Isaac, do you trust me? Do you trust me that I love you, that I'm a good father to you, that I would never do anything to your destruction? Do do you know how God has always been faithful to us? Isaac, you know he's promised you descendants. You know you don't have them yet. So do you trust God to raise you from the dead if necessary? That if he actually makes me do this, that, 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 that you will live some way or another. Will you be obedient With me, Isaac. And obviously he said yes. Keep that in your head. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham has stopped and he has passed the test. His faith has been proven to be genuine. He has proved that he loves and desires and will obey God over everything. 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So here, in those two verses, God introduces the idea of substitution. And we're going to come back to this. That a burnt offering, just if you didn't know, in Leviticus, it's, it's meant to be like an offering for sin, right? An atonement kind of an offering. And this ram here dies instead of Isaac, right? And make no mistake, Isaac is a sinner, right? So this ram dies instead of the sinner because God provided a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. So I see, now that we've done that, um, and we've like kind of went through and you've had a little bit of a walking commentary. I see four things for us in this passage. I'm sure there is a lot more, but my pea brain only sees four things, big things that we, I want us to consider this evening. We're going to look at those and then we're going to see how this whole thing points to Christ. Okay, so the first thing that really stuck out to me from, from the first time that I read this passage this week is this. 
God may lay intense suffering and tests on us. Verses 1 through 3, the Lord wanted to test Abraham. And then he tells him to go and kill his son. So what does that tell me? God can and will, right? God can and will give us suffering from time to time. By his grace, it's not all the time because he's gracious and merciful to us. But from time to time, he will give us suffering, intense suffering, right? So just throwing this out there. Don't try to get God off the hook when you're talking to people about suffering because I don't think God wants off the hook, right? Read the beginning chapter of Job if you don't believe me. Right? All, all things come from God. He has to give his stamp of approval to all things that happen to us. Right? So God himself will be the one that lays intense suffering and tests on us from time to time. So just like with Abraham, God may call us to do something or suffer something incredibly hard. Right? Now, nothing like he told Abraham to do. Right? Just throwing this out there, just a little theological point for you. Divine revelation has ceased. Right? God does not talk to people like he once did. Right? We go off what the Bible says, what the Bible says only. So God doesn't tell people to do things like this specifically anymore. Right? Scripture alone. And trust me, I've read the Bible the whole way through. Nowhere are we commanded to sacrifice our children. That was a specific command to Abraham. Right? So I just want to make that note real quick. You're not going to be asked to do something like this. But nevertheless, God may take something away from you that you love dearly. Hear me on this. He may take something from you. Or your life might not pan out the way that you had originally hoped that it would. And God doesn't always tell us why. And rarely does God tell us why. Most of the time it's hindsight where we're looking back on our life and God lets us peek behind this curtain of his hidden counsel. But even then, it's not very often. Sometimes we go through things and we suffer things and we never find out why until one day we're in glory with him. And I say that because he did not tell Abraham He did not tell Abraham until the end. So again, we know verse 1 of this story, and Abraham didn't. But I want you to know this. As I'm telling you, God is going to lay intense suffering on you from time to time. I want you to know this. God is not trying to destroy you in your trial. That's not what he's doing. God tests us, but he does not tempt us. Right? So God tests us whenever I say that. I mean, he is trying to, not trying to, he's going to be successful by his sovereign grace. He is increasing our faith and strengthening our faith as he lays this kind of suffering on us. Right? So God's intention is not to destroy our faith by allowing us to suffer, but to build it. But on the other hand, we have Satan who then swoops in in the midst of a test meant to build us up. And what does he do? He tempts us. He tempts us to disobey. He tempts us to curse God and die like Job's wife tried to get him to do. Um, He tries to get us to walk away from God. So what is Satan trying to do? Satan is the one trying to destroy our faith in the suffering as God in the suffering is trying to build our faith. So again, God tests us in order to build us. And just consider this. We don't look at suffering rightly a lot, I think. like It is a grace that God would desire us to grow. Think about that. And it takes suffering in order for us to grow. So it's actually a grace from God that he would sovereignly break us down from time to time in order to build us up into the people that he wants us to be. Because the reason why he saves us, Romans chapters eight, chapter 8 tells us, is to conform us to the image of Christ. And then the other place in the New Testament, I'm blanking right now, says that Christ was perfected in his suffering. So if we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, it's a grace from God, but it will require suffering. Right, so like I said in the beginning, I know some of us are in the middle of the test. We're right in the middle of the trial, and it hurts, 
And it can be big or it can be small. It does not matter. In the name of, in the, the name, in the words of John Piper, um, that kind of sounded blasphemous almost, right? In the name of John Piper, right? Like we do things in the name of Jesus. That almost got weird. Right? But like John Piper said, whether it's cancer or criticism, it does not matter. Right? God is building us through our tests and through our trials and through our suffering. A test is a test. Right? So one, God may lay intense suffering on us. The second thing I think we see is that Abraham models for us how a believer responds to trials and tests. Right? The Bible talks about him being like one of the greatest men of the faith ever. Right? So how, what does Abraham do? How are we supposed to respond to trials and tests? Look at verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning. He rose early to go and do. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't argue with God. And this is so huge. He does not argue with his Lord. He does not shake his fist at God and say, why would you ask me to do this? I hate you for putting me through this suffering and through this pain right now. No, he just gets up. Like This is why Abraham is such a man of faith. He just gets up, and though he is heartbroken at what God is asking him to endure and suffer right now, he is determined to persevere faithfully to his God. He rises early in the morning. This example teaches us about the nature of faith. Abraham simply trusts and obeys his God. That is the nature of faith. I trust you. I trust you no matter what you're making me suffer. I can't stress to you how much Abraham does not understand why this is necessary. He's not told why. But in the midst of the pain, he pushes on in faithful obedience to his God. James actually uses Abraham as the example of genuine saving faith. In James chapter 2, 21 through 23, James says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So James, pointing back to this incident with Abraham and Isaac, is essentially telling us that genuine saving faith is obedience. No matter what is thrown at us, faith equals obedience. Right now, now faith, hear me out, I'm not saying salvation comes by works. That's not what James's point is here. James is not contradicting Paul. But he says like his faith was completed by his works. Right, so faith is like the initial thing, and then God pushes us forward into obedience because faith always results in obedience. And I think this is, I was talking to Steve about this. One of the, one of the most uh, interesting, interesting things that I noted about Abraham and how he responded. And this, this, is, this is big, so if you're hurting, this was big for me. Abraham's emotions are not in sync with his actions, are they? How Abraham feels does not line up with what Abraham does. Right, so think about this. Abraham knows that God is good and that God would not ask him to do anything to his destruction and God would not put anything on him to destroy him because God has made all these promises to him back in Genesis 12 and 15. Right, he knows these things. But I guarantee you he did not feel that way. I guarantee you he thought God is trying to kill me with this. He had to have felt that way. But what does he do? Abraham allows what he knows to override how he feels. Like Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
not your emotions, your mind. Stick to what you know. That's how Abraham perseveres. So this is just a beautiful picture of raw faith in the goodness of God in the midst of suffering. Is that he would say, I don't understand, but it doesn't matter that I don't understand. It doesn't matter that I, I feel a certain way. I know otherwise because your word says otherwise. So we don't go off emotions. We go off what the Bible says. We go off what we know. But then we see this. We see... The third thing, so in the midst of this trial, in the midst of Abraham saying, I'm going to be faithful to my God, though I hurt and though I don't understand, we see God provides. God was faithful to Abraham. That's all, that's, because I'm not into the prosperity gospel, that's not what I'm trying to do. I think that God providing for Abraham is just another way of saying God is faithful to Abraham. He kept his promise to Abraham and Isaac lived. That's what I mean by that. And so this tells us that what? It tells us that God will provide for us or God will be faithful to us in the midst of our suffering. That he promises to see us through. Right? So hear me out. He may not take away the pain. I am not telling you that you know, if you just trust God enough, one day you won't hurt anymore. I mean, one day you will whenever we're in glory with Christ. But on this earth, I'm not saying that God is going to take your pain away. God may take everything from you and allow the pain to linger with you for the rest of your life. But He will be faithful to you. He will provide for you in the midst of that pain. He will keep His promises to His people. And His promises are, at a basic level, to keep us in His grace, to care for us, and to grow us for His glory. He will do those things. He has not and will not abandon us. He has promised us that we are His children and that He takes care of His kids even when He lays suffering on us. He is increasing our faith and turning us into the people that He wants us to be is what He's doing through this. So hear me. I do not know I'm not a prophet, right? I do not know how God is specifically going to be faithful to you in the midst of whatever you're going through right now. I do not know. I'm not going to pretend. But I do know that God will take care of you through it and comfort you in it in a way that only he can. If we will only push into him and lean on him. That's what we see God doing here with Abraham, right? So that tells us we have a biblical precedent, right? Think like, a, think like law terms, right? We have a precedent. God did this in the past for his people. We know that God does not show favoritism. The Bible is very clear on that. So what does that tell us? He's going to do the exact same for us, right? So when whatever you're going through, take heart in your trial because God is in it with you. He's not far away from any one of you right now. He will provide for you. Right? And hear me on this, because I hate it whenever people do this, whenever like you're suffering through something, whenever they just give you a bunch of religious platitudes. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, God will provide for you. Get out of my face. I really don't want to deal with this anymore. Right? That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm just trying to, to shelve you and say, well, God will handle it. Just trust him. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Like, this is actually what the text is teaching us. Right, hear me on that. I'm not just trying to pat you on the back and say, God, I'll handle it. Get out of here. Like, this is actually what's, what's going on here. right? Abraham names this place Jehovah-Jireh. He names this mountain, the Lord will provide. Which some commentators have argued, that's Abraham's motto throughout his whole life. 
right, through all the stuff that he's been through, that he almost loses his wife a handful of times to, like, other men, like a king in Egypt, uh, specifically, I, I believe. Um, so, like, he's seen all this stuff. He almost got his land taken from him by a king called Abimelech in chapter 21. And what do we see? Time and time again, the Lord has provided a way to be faithful to his promises to Abraham and keep him in his grace. This is a legitimate thing. Right, so Abraham's motto is Jehovah Jireh. God will handle it. God will take care of me. I'm just going to push through this trusting him. Right? He won't abandon me. He loves me. He will provide. All I have to do is just push on faithfully. Right? He is my God. And I think one of the most encouraging things the Bible tells us is that our God reigns. Hear me on that. Your God loves you and your God reigns over all things, including your suffering. I think that's what Abraham has to hold on to here. But I see this fourth thing. He persevered. Abraham persevered faithfully. So hear me on this. I'm going to get real John Piper here for a moment. Our perseverance through testing turns us into living testimonies to the supremacy of God. I'm going to read that again. Our perseverance through testing turns us into living testimonies to the supremacy of God. Whenever the angel of the Lord, right, who I would argue is Jesus Christ, yells at Abraham and tells him to stop, and then he says, now I know that you fear God, right? I kind of got tripped up with that. I was like, did God learn anything? Right? Did God learn something here like he didn't know? Like, I thought he was omniscient and knew everything. And now he says, now I know that you fear God. God didn't learn anything, right? We outright reject open theism here. Google it and laugh at it later if you want to. Open theism. Um, God didn't learn anything. What he's doing here is he's speaking in human terms. This is all going to connect here in a second. He's speaking in human terms to Abraham. What is he doing? Now I know that you fear me above everything else. What he's saying is he's declaring Abraham faithful. He's saying, Abraham, you persevered through the test. Now I am declaring you to be faithful to me. God was declaring this to Abraham to give him assurance that he indeed belonged to God. But also consider this. This is recorded in sacred scripture for us. So God, in addition to declaring Abraham faithful to Abraham, God is declaring Abraham's faithfulness to us. Why? To show us that Abraham's example is faith. So we see Abraham's perseverance led Abraham to be a living testimony to the supremacy of God. That he's saying, no matter what comes, I will obey my God. Right. So this episode in Abraham's life is just one screaming message of this. God is all-satisfying. He's all-satisfying. He is worthy of all my life. He is so fulfilling that though he lays suffering on me, I will not stop pursuing him in faith. That's what Abraham is screaming at us with his actions here. So that tells me that as we suffer faithfully and don't curse God or give up, that we shout to the world around us that our God is supreme and that our God is good and that He is worthy of our affection even in the midst of intense suffering and pain and confusion. And that's really God's goal in our suffering. He does everything for His glory. right? If anyone ever asks you, why does God do anything? Just know this, for His glory. That's just a good blanket answer. He does it all for His glory. God's goal in our suffering is that he would be magnified. 
He would be shown to be huge, that we would rightly show the world who he is in our perseverance, that we would become living examples of the faithfulness of Jesus, who proved God's supremacy by being faithful unto death. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is saying, my God is supreme. I will humble myself in obedience even to death on a cross. So where is Christ in all this? Like, man, there are like 15 or 30 different things that I could have thrown at you where Christ is in all this. So we've seen suffering and all these things, but I want us to see Christ in this because Abraham and Isaac are great examples, right? But they are a mere shadow of Christ. They are a mere shadow of the one who was to come. So where is Christ? Christ is in Abraham. Abraham foreshadows Christ by obeying God no matter what it cost him. And also, though Abraham did not want to suffer it, Make no mistake, right? Let's not, let's not read this and be stupid about it. Abraham did not want to kill his son. But in, let's consider the words of Jesus in John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. He's considering his, his coming crucifixion. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. What is Jesus consumed with? The glory of God in the midst of his suffering. I think it's funny how Jesus, he asked a rhetorical question. My soul is troubled because I'm going to have to suffer and die and I really don't want to do this. But what am I going to say? God save me from my death? No. This is the reason why I'm here. This is the purpose that I have come. Is for this hour. Father, glorify your name in my suffering. And what does God respond with? A voice from heaven. God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again through your suffering. Just like Abraham is all about glorifying God in the midst of his suffering, though he doesn't want to endure the suffering, Jesus is an even greater example because Christ lays down his own life to the glory of God the Father. Christ is also in Isaac. We said Isaac... There are some scholars, I think there's being cute, they think Isaac was 33 years old, the same age Christ was. But regardless, he's between 15 and 37, so he's, he's grown. Isaac foreshadows the willingness of God the Son to lay down his life in obedience to God the Father. Abraham must have asked Isaac, let me bind you and put you on this altar. This is what God has commanded us to do. Will you obey with me? Will you listen to your father on this? And what do we see Jesus? John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me, his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. It's just like Isaac is saying, I trust you, Dad. I'll lay down my life for, the, for this And I trust that God will raise me up again. Jesus is doing the same. He's saying, I will lay down my life for my sheep. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. So in Isaac's willingness to obey his father, we see a foreshadowing of the greater obedience of Jesus Christ to his father. And then the most blatant foreshadowing of Jesus is in the ram. 
The ram foreshadows the death of Christ as a substitute for sinners. Right? The ram dies so that Isaac might live. And what does John say? I remember Isaac said, Where's the lamb, Father? Centuries later, we see this, John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, where is the Lamb? Here. That Ram is just the foreshadowing of Christ, the one who would come and go to a cross for the sake of sinners. Just like the Ram died in place of the sinner, Isaac, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died in the place of sinners. So that if we would put our faith in Him, God could count us righteous because Christ has paid our debt, our sin debt that we owed God. So to kind of conclude this whole thing, i got a few verses that I want us to consider for a minute. We talked about suffering. We see how Christ is willing to suffer. We see how Christ is a greater version of everything in this passage. Paul talks a lot about suffering in Romans chapter 8, and he says this, verses 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So specifically here, I think we can draw this. If God did not spare, just consider the cross in all things when you suffer. If God did not spare his own son for us in order to save us from his wrath, then God will not withhold his help for us in our trials. If he didn't spare his own son, won't he give us everything else? Won't he help us? God is going to be just as faithful to hold us in his hands as he was to Abraham in the midst of his testing. And know this, whenever you're suffering, know that your tests and your trials are building your faith. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. If you're in the middle of something right now, you memorize this later. In this you rejoice. He's talking about your salvation. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our trials are from God. And Peter says they are necessary if we are to become, quote, good gold that God will eternally rejoice over. That he's purifying us and purifying our faith so that that someday, whenever we stand before Christ, Christ will rejoice over us and say, look at this good gold that I made and it took suffering to do it. This completely changes our view of suffering. Right? Think about this. 10,000 years from now, whatever pain that you're currently going through will not matter. But Christ's praise will. Where he looks over you and says, good gold that I refined through suffering. So that tells me that there is coming a day that we will bless God for all of the suffering it took to refine us into the gold that Christ rejoices over. One day, whatever it is that you've suffered throughout your life, you will bless God for every ounce of pain. Because Christ will rejoice over you. Because of what he has made you into. So push on in faith through the test and watch God be glorified in you. Watch yourself become that good gold that Christ rejoices over. Trust him to see you through and become a living testimony that screams to the world that my God reigns and he is worthy of my love and affection and my obedience no matter what comes at me.
Be that testimony. I'll leave you guys with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. No faith is so precious as that which lives and triumphs through adversity. Tested faith brings experience. You would never have believed your own weakness had you not needed to pass through trials. And you would never have known God's strength had His strength not been needed to carry you through. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being a good Father to us. A Father who brings suffering on us sometimes, but You do it not in order to destroy us, but in order to turn us into good gold that Your Son will rejoice over. God, I pray that anyone here who is currently just in the midst of it right now, who is just hurting, that you would give them grace to persevere, that you would hold them in your arms and let them know that you love them. God, be faithful to your people. Help us to always continually look to the suffering of Christ and his example as we suffer so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Father, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.